In your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 10. And we'll begin our reading in verse 23. We'll read through verse 25. Proverbs 10, 23. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. It is as sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. As the whirlwind passeth, so is the wicked no more, but the righteous is an everlasting foundation. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation is from our great uh, Englishman here uh, that we have used for the, his commentary on the Proverbs, the Reverend Charles Bridges. But if our desires be granted and even exceeded, faith and patience will be tried in the very grant. Growth in grace will be given by deep and humbling views of our corruption. Longings for holiness shall be fulfilled by painful affliction. Prayer will be answered in crosses, yet the ground of our confidence is firm. All things needful will be given, and at the grand consummation, every desire will be eternally fulfilled. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Thus suddenly, as the whirlwind Doth the fear of the wicked often come upon him? All his hopes, pleasures, and dependencies, all his opportunities of grace and offers of mercy are swept away in a moment forever. Such a whirlwind was the destruction of the old world, of the cities of the plain, of Sennacherib's army. And such a whirlwind, infinitely more terrible, will be the coming of the Lord. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever as an everlasting foundation. Faith hath fastened him to the rock of ages, hath built his house upon the rock, and no storm can root him up. Thus the Reverend Charles Bridges. So we have been discussing this verse 23. It is a sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. Let me remind you, first of all, of the hermeneutical principle that we learned in studying this, that Solomon left the implications to us to figure out in our understanding, in our interpretation. If it's a sport to a fool, what ought it be to the man of understanding that hath wisdom? What ought sin to be to him? It ought to be a grief. And so as that was left for us to make that connection ourselves, we made it. And we hope that when we come to other passages of Scripture like that, that this will be a sort of manual to help us to do the same thing in other antithetical Proverbs like this one. In the second point I wanted to make is we studied grief and sin and what did, we, what did we learn? Well, we, we took hold of three examples, didn't we? The nines, if you'll remember, right? 
Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. And we learned from studying those three passages that there were particular confessions of sin made, particular grief over sin that was uh, felt, had, experienced by those men, and yet it was not even their own sin over which, which they grieved. We took up, didn't we, in their words, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, where he says, Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law, or horror hath taken hold on me because they keep not thy commandments. And then we reasoned from the lesser to the greater. If that's the grief with regard to sins out there, how much more so with regard to sins in here? So that's where we've been so far in the passage. I wanted to go uh, just one or two more steps beyond that and then note that what the, that the other thing that Solomon does in this passage is he counsels us to think on the ends of the courses that we take up. And beloved, this is not this is not something that we do very well naturally as a race. We are concerned more than we ought to be for that which takes place in the moment rather than considering the end of where this goes. And we are counseled in this passage and in many passages of Scripture to consider the ends of things. We've already sung about that in, in the Psalms. The end of that man is peace. Those words came out of our mouths just a few moments ago. That's why that psalm was chosen. So that we would meditate in our singing on the ends of things. This is important. We don't often do that. Or like the, like the, the, the man that is described over and again in the Psalter. He has some ends in mind. But they are wicked ends. He lays upon his bed at night. Planning up sin. Doesn't he? Laying that mental work down before he will actually execute that. And he does not consider his latter end, does he? Okay, so we want to do that. We, we, we want to do what Solomon has counseled us to do here in this passage. As for the rest of the chapter, what we have said is that chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 26 tends to stand alone, speaking about the sluggard. And then notice 27 through the end, we talk about the way of the Lord and so on. And so the, the end of the, of, of the chapter tends to hang together a little bit better uh, once we get past verse 26. So this week then, we, we, we hope to finish up through verse 25. Next week, we take up 26. And then the weeks following that, we'll take 27 through 32 and that will finish up chapter 10 lord willing all right so let's talk about uh, this wise man of understanding on the latter end of of the uh of the parallel in 23 it is a sport to a fool to do mischief but a man of understanding hath wisdom another characteristic then that i wanted to talk with you about with regard to this man here uh, is that he knows the time. He knows what to think about the particular time that he lives in. And so he knows how to respond. Notice that Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel, well, 
let's talk about Ezra and Nehemiah first because they're in temporally different circumstances. So Daniel is still in Babylon. We will be hard-pressed to see that Daniel ever returned to the land. Uh, The scripture never tells us that. But it does say that Ezra and Nehemiah returned to the land. And in their return, notice here they are coming back from captivity. And that one would think that it would be a time of great rejoicing. They've been released from captivity. Would Would that not be a time to celebrate? Obviously, yes, it would. As a matter of fact, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that there is a celebration that takes place. And it is a celebration based on what I can anachronistically call their Christian liberty. And what I mean by Christian liberty is that they were, they were gathered together in the streets of Jerusalem. And the Levites were gathered there as well. And Ezra the priest opened up the Bible and read to them distinctly. And they heard the word of God for the first time in many years. And the Levites interpreted that word for them so that they understood the sense of it and they left that day rejoicing. They came back after one day's rest probably to set their affairs in order as we looked at and they came back for the Feast of Tabernacles and they undertook the Feast of Tabernacles according to the commandment and we said that the timing of that was important. You'll remember that as we looked at the dates that they met together and then they left with the joy of the Lord as their strength. Weep not, eat the fat, drink the sweet. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so they did rejoice, but it wasn't only for their returning to the land. It was that in their return, they had great liberty to partake of what we partake of every week. And many like us do, in that we have someone to minister the word to us, to read it, to preach it, to give us the sense that we might leave rejoicing, knowing what God has spoken to us. But then in chapter 9, something entirely changes in Nehemiah. Right? We hear about some sins that the people of God are undertaking. And we, not, we need not turn there and detail those out. Only to say this. That now that they have returned, and now that they have rejoiced, and now that they have, they have heard the word of the Lord, that's not the end of, their, of the battle. It's not the end of their concern now they, they must turn the guns, if you will, on their sins and learn to eradicate them. And so Nehemiah and Ezra lead them in that kind of service next. Right? In, in Daniel, Daniel has been studying the word of God. Right? And in studying it, he's read in the book of Jeremiah that it's going to be a 70-year captivity. He knows the time of that is coming nearer. And so what does he do? He petitions the Lord and, and, con- and begins confessing the sins of the people, those sins for which they went into captivity, because he knows the time of its release is near. All three of these men then exhibit a particular characteristic, and that is that they knew how spiritually to respond to the times that they lived in. And so they knew how to grieve over sin when it was time to do that, even though it may appear to others that this was or ought to be a time of rejoicing. But it was not for them, in fact, 
They did the opposite. They grieved over sin. It's an odd thing when we think about it. It seems to be out of accord with what is proper, yet it was exactly what was proper. They do not treat the promises of God or the graces of God in a presumptuous manner. And this is a part of of the wise man and his construction that Solomon will bring upon us. We grieve over sin if we are wise and understanding. Even in times where we understand great prosperity. We will thank the Lord and we will rejoice over those times of prosperity But in the case of Ezra and Nehemiah, we will grieve when sins threaten even that very prosperity that we have enjoyed. In the case of Daniel, we will not simply rest upon the promise of God. Hey, 70 years is almost up. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. Let's rejoice. No, he grieves over the sins that brought them there in the face of it being the day or near the day of their release. This is the wise man who has understanding. The scriptures present this to us in several different ways. Let's take a look at, first of all, Ezekiel chapter 21. Verse 8. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy, and say, Thus saith the Lord, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened, and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It contemneth the rod of my son as every tree. And he hath given it to be furbished, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened, and it is furbished. To give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite, therefore, upon thy thigh. Because it is a trial. And what if the sword contemn even the rod? It shall be no more saith the Lord God, Thou therefore, son of man, prophesy, and smite thine hands together, and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which entereth into into their privy chambers. I have set the point of their sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint, and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright, it is wrapped up for the slaughter. Go thee one way or other, either on the right hand or on the left, whithersoever thy face is set. I will also smite mine hands together, and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have said it. Well, the main point that I want to bring out from this is, what is the response of the wise man of understanding when he hears that the sword, the sword, It is furbished. Furbished, remember what we learned? It's polished. In other words, it's going to have an easy entry. It's not rough on the outside. It's smooth on the outside and sharp on the edges so that it will penetrate like it's supposed to 
And so what shall we do when we see this sword? Shall we make mirth? No. No, that's the rhetorical question that the Lord asks through his prophet Ezekiel. The wise man will know what to do when he sees the sword furbished. Beloved, the wise man will know that it is time to mourn and to weep and to ask forgiveness from the Lord for sins when he sees those strokes of judgment begin to fall. We remember the historical situation of Ezekiel. They were the second wave of captivity. And they yet had hopes, didn't they? That Jerusalem would be delivered and they could go home. But it was not to be. The Lord says, no, a sword is sharpened and it is furbished. Don't make mirth. And the implication is what? Weep and mourn and howl and cry and confess your sins to the Lord and grieve over the sins of the people. And every time that is set before the people of God, as we saw when we studied this in Joel chapter 2, call a fast, call a, call a solemn assembly, let the, let the elders weep before the porch and the door, right? We saw that last week. Uh, what? What for? That the Lord may turn aside. Who knows, Joel says in chapter 2 there. Who knows whether or not the Lord will turn from his anger and leave a blessing instead. So the wise man knows what to do in the face of sin. He knows when he sees these judgments fall. Now, beloved, you've heard us speak about this before. I think you agree with me. We look at our own country. We see not judgments coming, but judgments here. When we we see things like that, we don't say, we don't put far away from us the evil day, do we? No, we say the evil day is here. And when we say the evil day is here, we are induced the more to confess and to mourn and to grieve for sin. And so when we look at our own country and we see the signs of judgment all around us, not just temporal signs as you know storms and earthquakes and famine and supply chain disruptions and other things like that, although those are difficult, we also see things like the destruction of the biblical conception of family, one man and one woman. We see children thought of as a burden rather than a blessing. We see the spiritual things of God turned aside. We see one day in seven kept holy turned to a day for me. Those, beloved, are signs of judgment. And if we would read the first chapter of Romans, and we want to be careful because we're in mixed company, we would see that those perversions that the Lord describes there are really toward the end of a judgment process and not in the beginning of a judgment process. And so we're a long way down that road. And so what does the wise man do in such a case as that? He says... A sword, a sword is furnished, a furbished, and it is sharpened. And he asks the rhetorical question, and all the people of God will say, No, shall we then make mirth? No, we shall not make mirth. We shall, Lord helping us, be like those men of Issachar of, of old who had understanding of the times, who knows what, who knew what Israel ought to do. 
This is a part of being that wise man of Proverbs 10.23, the man of understanding. And so it will not do to say everything's okay. Beloved, everything's not okay. One of the things that I contemplated last week instead of turning to Ezekiel 16 is I was recalling a few years back when I, when I preempted the President's State of the Union address but by doing my own from here. Some of you will remember that. We did a State of the Union address. As I looked over that, that, that sermon and thought about preaching it, I thought, well, you know, this sermon's really not a lot relevant anymore. Things are, even in the eight years or so that, that it's been, things have gotten so much worse that I'd really have to rewrite the, the entire sermon. Instead of doing that one, we turned to Ezekiel 16 instead. But, beloved, when we look around, what is the state of these United States of America? Uh, what are we going to understand in that? Well, we understand that most of our politicians who are part of the problem rather than the solution, I say most because I don't want to speak universally and I don't have a lot of particular knowledge over how they behave themselves. But when we hear from their mouths coming out things like, God bless the United States of America, we hear that ring very hollow as a third commandment violation because they're not doing the things that would make for God's blessing this land. What does the righteous man do when faced with these judgments, when this sword is seen on the horizon as bright, furbished, and sharpened? Well, he certainly does not make Mirth. And this is a part of the application of Proverbs 10.23. The wicked make a sport of sin, but the man of wisdom hath, an, or the man of understanding hath wisdom instead. In Isaiah chapter 5, Verse 11, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night, till wine inflame them. And the harp and the vial, the tabret and pipe and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. <clears throat> Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. So that's a very important passage along these same lines. There are those that in the face of such judgments... They don't regard the operation of the Lord or the work of his hands. What, what, what might we say are the work of the hands of God in our day? Well, these things that we've talked about. We've seen natural disaster. 
We've seen temporal disaster. We've seen spiritual disaster. We've seen all of those things. Beloved, these things don't take place apart from the providence of God. This is a part of His direction in this country. These are judgments that come upon us for our sins. Notice what the people are doing in Isaiah 5. They're rising up early in the morning that they might follow strong drink. They continue at night until wine inflame them. They love the harp and the vial and the tabret and the pipe and the wine and they're in their feasts. But they don't regard the work of the Lord or what he's doing with his hands. And so the point that is made here in Isaiah chapter 5 when the, when the northern kingdom is still standing, and Isaiah is prophesying to the north and to the south, that there's a, there's a problem here. The statutes of Omri are kept, as Micah will say. And the people are not mourning. They're partying. This is what we said a few years back when we said, no, we don't want to return to the status quo. The Lord takes such things away and judges us in such a way that we will not desire to go back to the status quo. Did the Israelites, beloved, that we read about earlier today in Exodus 5 and 6, did they desire to go back to the status quo? They began to look for the deliverance of the Lord. And how will we expect that deliverance to come except we mourn and grieve and pray and confess and ask like Habakkuk did that in the midst of wrath the Lord would remember mercy we're in the midst of wrath let's pray that he remembers mercy so it is indeed a part of this wisdom in Proverbs 10.23 to know the times in which we live Isaiah 22 is the next passage verse 8 And he discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem. And the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also the ditch between the two walls for water of the old pool, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth and behold joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep. Eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord of hosts. These are hard passages to read. Not, not a very happy topic. But this is a part of the application of Proverbs 10.23. To know the times in which we live. That we may be those wise men. Those understanding people. That know what to do. Rather than to make a mock or a sport or a jest at sin. 
What do we do when we see sin and the judgments of sin falling down all around us? What did they do here? This is a fascinating passage. Notice, you discovered the covering of Judah. You looked to the armor of the house of the forest. What does that mean? You took off the covering of Judah. What was the covering of Judah? The Lord himself. And what did you do instead? You looked to your armor house in the forest. You think your armor house is going to save you, God says. And then the next point, look at this. You made a ditch between the two walls and the, and, uh, uh, for water of the old pool. But you've not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. So you figured out a way so that when the enemy came, he should not find water. You, you made use of that means. Notice what it says before. You've numbered the houses in, in, in Jerusalem. What does that mean? <clears throat> okay. Which ones are being uh, lived in and which ones aren't? First thing we'll do then is we'll take down the ones that are not being lived in and we'll use those materials to fortify the wall. You know, they can't just go down to Home Depot. So we're going to tear down particular houses that we've numbered, that we've numbered for destruction and we'll use that material to fortify the wall. What are they doing? They're using every kinds of means except for prayer and fasting and weeping and calling for repentance. But that's exactly what the Lord is calling for. And all of those other things, useful as they might be, uh, temporally speaking, will not stop the judgments without the repentance. It is, if you can maybe come with me a little bit on this... It is making a sport of sin. It is thinking that we can fix it through temporal things. Oh, beloved, the land is full of such remedies. May I say it this way, that our politicians use the temporal judgments that the Lord sends as judgments. And they provide carnal remedies that they alone can provide if you will elect them. And that's the fix. That's just another sign of judgment, beloved. That's all that is. Until we have leaders that will stand up and say, like Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel, let us turn to the Lord our God, for we have sinned against him. And until that begins here, as we said last week in the churches, we cannot expect that the Lord will turn from the fierceness of those judgments. And we must be people of our times. We must be those people of understanding who have wisdom that know what Israel ought to do in times like ours. That's the application of Proverbs 10.23 thus far. The same is seen in Amos chapter 6. See, the Bible is not, um, it's not, you know, this is like a one-off. It, it's only talked about Every now and then. There are several places where these kinds of things are taught. In Amos chapter 6, we'll begin our reading in verse 3. Uh, let's go back to verse 1. Woe to them that are in ease, that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named the chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pashi unto Kalneth. And see, and from thence go ye 
to Hamat the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms or their border greater than your border? And what's being said there in verses 1 and 2 is all of these other nations have already been destroyed by the Assyrians. That's already, it's done. Do you think you're greater than those nations? Do you think you'll escape if they haven't? Isn't that exactly what Rabshakeh said when he stood on the wall of Jerusalem? That's exactly the argument that he used in the Hebrew language with the people when Hezekiah did the right thing and spread out his complaint before the Lord. He was the first. And what happened? The Lord brought deliverance, didn't he? He had that wisdom and that understanding. So Kalneh, Hamat, these are exactly the, the, um, the, the nation states that Rabshakeh mentions when he's standing on the wall. All right, now verse 3. Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves on their couches and eat lambs out of the flock and calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive and the banquet of them that stretched themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. What were they doing instead? Laying on couches. Having people drop grapes into their mouth. Right? Drinking wine in bowls. Or as Isaiah says it, inflaming themselves by wine. They ate the lambs out of the flock, right? The youngest, the tenderest, the calves out of the stall. Those calves that have never run out in the field to bulk up their muscles so that they would remain tender. We'd call it veal today. Right? They're raised in the dark, uh, not allowed to move out of a stall. They're fed milk, nothing that will bulk them up so that they would be the most succulent. They had music, the violins. They invented music instruments to themselves like David did. They're all about their indulgences and they have not grieved for Joseph. So, these are the kinds of things that are being spoken of here along with um, what we talked about before with Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra. Now we see when it, can, when it comes to the sign of the times that we must be a people and we are being encouraged to be a people here in this passage that know our own times and how we ought to respond. And beloved, may I say that um, as moderator of our presbytery, well, let me put it this way, I'll be petitioning our men for quite a few more days of fasting as a presbytery than we have seen in times past. I think the Lord is bringing this up to us for a reason at this time. And frankly, I am somewhat uh, negligent, I think, in not calling for it before. 
I think it's time. I think it's time that as churches we band it together with fasting and with sackcloth and we, we ask the Lord to bring deliverance and reformation to our land. Certainly, we can't go on partying. That's not going to do. All right, so there are, I have several reasons here and we'll take these pretty quickly and in order. Uh, the question that I've asked is why should we grieve over sin. Why should we? And there are several things that the scripture presents to us in this. But like I said, they are sort of a list of things and we can take them fairly briefly. Turn with me to Isaiah 59 first. Switching gears a little bit here. Chapter 59 of Isaiah verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. We know Isaiah 59. We use it, we use it a lot here. Okay, so we, we know. But this verse 2 is very helpful. Why should we grieve over sin? Because when we, as a, as a collective people, which is what is being spoken to here in Isaiah 59, the Lord is dealing with the nation as with a person, when we sin in that way, the Lord says that it separates his favorable presence from us. It separates his favorable presence from us. This is what we've seen already in our identification of many, many strokes of judgment that have fallen upon us. But notice it says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So what does Isaiah tell us? That it estranges us from God such that we will become the object of either his fatherly displeasure or his revenging judgments. We will suffer the consequences for it. It is then something worthy of grief. Notice also <clears throat> that this is what happened in Joshua's Israel in the affair of Achan and Ai. It cost the children of Israel 36 lives that day and the Lord's displeasure. Joshua will fall down before the Lord when they lose 36 men. And he will say, Lord, what about your great name? The heathen are going to hear about this. and They're going to say, you couldn't bring them into the land. What, what will you do with regard to your great name, Lord? And the Lord says very simply and very directly, Joshua, get up. Israel hath sinned. And then they will, they will cast the lots and it will fall to Achan. And he and his family will be stoned and the sin will be removed. And then there is success in Israel as they move toward Ai. What happened? There was sin in the camp. And although Joshua pleaded before the Lord on account of his great name, notice that there was no confession of sin in that. Joshua didn't know. 
And so the Lord says, rise up and deal with the sin. Same thing as we saw here in Isaiah 59. Our sins separate us from the favorable presence of God. In Jeremiah, no, I'm sorry, let's, let's go first to Isaiah 57, turn one page over, verse 17. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace of my God to the wicked. So, there are those cries for deliverance, but they are not coupled with confession of sin. If you would turn back to verse 13, you'll see that. The Lord says, no, there must be confession of sin. There must be a forsaking of sin. The Lord declares that he will hide his face. He will no longer reveal himself, his protection and love, but will leave us to our own devices if we entertain sin. And we see that in Deuteronomy 31 and 32. So that's the first. Sin separates us from God from his comfortable presence. Number two, sin withholds good things from the people of God. Sin withhold withholds good things from the people of God. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 5. Verse 25. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that setteth snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore, They are become great and waxen rich. They are waxen fat. They shine. Yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not judge. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? As a part of the judgment, what does the Lord send? Judges and prophets and priests. That is leaders in the church and in the state that continue to deceive. That, that are for sale, if you will. They're for sale. That's a part of the judgment. What does the Lord say? Sin has withholden good things from you. It separates us from God, number one. Number two, it causes good things to be withheld from us. That's number two. Number three, sin injures us and our loved ones in our families, in our churches, and in our communities. We are not islands to ourselves. When we sin, beloved, remember this, we do not sin only for ourselves. There are ripples that affect others as well. Achan believed that he sinned only for himself. 
there are 36 graves outside of Ai that would testify against that. Turn with me also to Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that, un- he that received it. And so what do we have in this passage? Well we have not only here but also in Thyatira. We have the toleration of false doctrine. And in the toleration of false doctrine many became infected and were injured by it. Our sins beloved are not simply private sins. They are often uh, that which affects those who are around us. Don't we swear when we join the church as a part of our vows that all that the Lord has commanded we will do and him will we serve. And we do that in covenant one with another so as to keep the body pure. So as to keep one another uh, pure and advancing in the faith. We confess that we have a duty one to another, to advance each other's faith, to help each other, to strengthen one another's hands unto obedience. But when we sin, we tear all of that down. We set a bad example one before another. We can bring judgment on a group of people. A father can bring judgment upon his family. A son can bring judgment upon his family because of his sins. There's no such thing as private when it comes to that. It's not at all private. It affects the community in which we live, no matter how we consider that community as a family, a church, or a commonwealth. So that's the third reason we have to grieve over sin. The fourth, entertaining rather than grieving over sin brings sorrow because it contributes to a growing blindness, a growing blindness. We become habituated to sin. It becomes the norm for us. And so it contributes to a jadedness or a blindness in it. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 is, this, is that grand statement of it. And then we'll look at a passage in Isaiah 44. But Second Timothy 3 for a moment. Verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving And being deceived. Do you hear that? Deceiving and being deceived. There is a particular habituation 
that takes place with regard to sin. If it is not confessed and forsaken, we begin to imbibe in it and don't even remember or know any longer that it is wrong. We have this all around us, beloved. I mean, how many people do you know out there in the world that are what we used to call living in sin? That it is accepted as normal having children out of wedlock. And there's not even a hint of we should get married so that our children will have a mother and a father. Oh, he or she is, quote, not in the picture. And that is the answer to the question, period, full stop, without an explanation, without an excuse, without any grief. It is accepted as normal. And may I say, beloved, more and more in our churches as well. We should mourn for these things. When it is accepted, it becomes normal and evil men wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We are deceived into thinking this is normal when it's not. We must define normal by the scriptures and not by the whim of the majority. Turn to Isaiah 44 for a moment. Isaiah 44. Verse 14. He heweth him down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash and the rain doth nourish it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof, he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Verse 18. They have not known, nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is their knowledge, nor understanding, to say, Quote, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also, I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? If it were not so grievous, it would almost be a comedy. He takes a tree that he himself planted after it has grown and chops either the whole thing down or a large branch off of it. And he splits the wood, cuts it into chunks and splits it, starts a fire. Oh man, that feels good. I'm warm. 
And that begins to stir his affections up toward that wood because it made him warm. And then what? And then he puts food on that fire. Oh, it's even better now. Not only am I warm, I'm full. That's really good. And then I've got some wood left over. This wood has been so good to me. I'm going to make it a God. And I'm going to set it up and worship it. Now we look at that and we say, well, that's stupid. That's silly. Well, it is. It's as silly and as senseless as worshiping any means, isn't it? Of trusting in your armaments, in your economic prowess, in your bank account, in, your, in the strength of your arm. It's as silly as any of those things. It's a deceived heart that has turned him aside. He doesn't have the wherewithal in his mind because, as we read earlier in Second Thessalonians, he has this deceivableness of unrighteousness. He's gullible to unrighteousness because he's deceivable and fallen and corrupted in his thoughts. And so, it is impossible for him to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Beloved, sin is to be grieved over Because if it's not grieved over, it becomes the norm. It becomes what we do. And uh, it is possible that even the professing people of God can bring themselves to a place through following after this that we cannot say, there's a law, is there not a lie in my right hand? So if it's not confessed and forsaken, it becomes the norm. This is why we must grieve over it. And finally, This is the greatest reason of all, and we'll close with this. Because sin is a grief to God himself. The great God, the impassable God, the unchangeable God, will condescend in his speech to fallen human beings and say in Genesis chapter 6, my spirit is grieved. It's impossible, theologically speaking, for God's spirit to be grieved in the sense that he's somehow responding to what mankind has done. We know that about God, that he is impassable, that he's not affected by us. But God will condescend in his language to show his great hatred and grief of sin in that he will condescend and say exactly those words. Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and, the, and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh, yet, in, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children unto them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Beloved, does that not move you? Oh, it must. It must move us that this is the greatest reason of all 
To be those wise men of understanding who know not to mock at sin, but to grieve at sin because God himself grieves at sin. And that is the greatest reason. All these other reasons have to do with our well-being, right? With our service, with our obedience, something that pertains to us. But now we turn away from all that and we turn directly face to face with God and we say, sin grieves him. And so it must grieve us. There can be no other response for the godly. In Psalm 78 and verse 40. Again, uh, Genesis 6 is not just a one-off here. Verse 37, Psalm 78, 37. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time stirred he his, uh, turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not His hand nor the day when He delivered them from the enemy. Notice in Luke chapter 19. We mentioned this passage a couple of weeks ago. Let's go ahead and bring it up again. Verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children with thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and to them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. And could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Our Lord Jesus Christ weeps over the sin of the city. Doesn't he? And it is here we come back full circle. To the beginning of our study. What is the, what is the complaint of Christ against the city. In that he is grieving over its sin. What does he say to them? You didn't know the time. You didn't know the day of your visitation. Your Messiah came to you and you refused. You did not mourn and weep. You did not grieve. You refused Messiah and his salvation. And so there is nothing left, as he will say earlier in this book, but destruction. Your house will be left to you desolate. Well, beloved, as we make some uses of this, then we must, we must, we must 
not leave ourselves exposed to these judgments by being something other than those who know how to evaluate the times and call for those days of weeping and fasting. Yea, we do it ourselves, privately, don't we? No one is stopping each and every one of us from a day of fasting and prayer, from a, from a day of grief and, and consternation over sin. To put on that, as the prophets will say, that astonied face for the sin and the judgments that are coming down all around us, that the Lord would be pleased to forgive, that in wrath he would remember mercy. So as we turn back to Proverbs chapter 10 and read verse 23 for one last time together. What does it say? It is a sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. In these last three sermons on that passage, we have seen what that wisdom entails, haven't we? Let's take these things to heart. Let's make use of them in our lives as we think on what we might do in our closets and as a church and as a presbytery and even perhaps as a denomination or multiple denominations banded together that we might ask the Lord for mercy in the midst of judgments. Let us not make mirth in days when judgments are falling down like rain. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee thankful for this notice of Proverbs 10.23. Help us to be those people of understanding that have wisdom. Not to make light of these days. Not to take pleasure in iniquity. Fully and finally, as we have heard this day, that we might recognize the grief that sin is unto thee, that we also might grieve for our own sins, for the sins of those that we are in covenant with, perhaps in the church, in the state, in our communities. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth rather than the rather than joining with the citizenry like dead fish floating downhill downstream that we would know how to swim against that tide of judgment and destruction that we see around us oh lord grant us a proper sense of how we can be thankful and rejoice and also lord a proper sense of how we might grieve help us to make out of our own affections, uh, an uprightly biblical response that we might be proper people of this time. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.